you're faced with adversity, do you flounder or fly? I'm Simon Ratcliffe, and on Turning the Tables, I share candid, powerful stories of people who have turned around adversity in their personal or business lives to find new purpose and meaning. In each episode, I will dig deep to uncover the mindsets that turn adversity into advantage. There is no perfect way to live a life. Life is change. Isn't that true? Nothing is forever. Whatever difficulties we might be facing, we can be sure that things will change. In a funny kind of way, that's a permanent feature of life, that change will happen. So I'm delighted and absolutely honoured to have as my guest on this episode of Turning the Tables, Julia Samuel. Julia Samuel, MBE, is one of the country's most respected psychotherapists. Founder, patron of Child Bereavement UK, Julia has for the last 30 years worked for the NHS and latterly in her private practice helping people through the heartbreaking trauma of losing a child, to working with families around health, retirement and many other life challenges. Julia is the daughter of James Guinness and delightfully is one of Prince George of Cambridge's godparents. Julia has written two books and in her latest titled This Too Shall Pass, she shares stories from her practice of people facing critical crises in their lives and what we can learn from them. In our conversation, we discuss many aspects of life's adversities and Julia shares with us her wisdom and insight on, amongst other things, dealing with grief and the deep emotional pain that comes from the loss of a child, how relationships can stand the test of time, a particular challenge for many people in today's world, her raw insights into the difference between a good argument and a bad argument, and the pillars of strength Julia writes about in her latest book. We started our conversation talking about what had driven Julia into psychotherapy in the first place. Well, welcome to Turning the Tables, Julia. So I really wanted to start by asking you what motivated you in the first place to get into this as a career? I think the the sort of less obvious connection is that I'm much more interested in what goes on inside people than what they show. And I think a lot of that comes from my childhood, like most things do, where my both my parents had very significant losses by the time they were 25. So by the time my mum was 25, her mother, her father, her sister and her brother had all died. She was the only person left. And my father, his father and um, brother had died. And they never talked about them. There were these black and white photographs around the house, but I didn't know any stories about them. And I think sort of below the waterline, as it were, um, there were lots of grief processes going on that was unvoiced and unexpressed. And I think that sort of unconsciously and then consciously, because I wanted to know what people were really thinking, feeling, led me to be a therapist and a specialist in grief. 
Mm. Um, and what has it been about that particular line of, of therapy which has really motivated you to continue on with that? The thing that really motivates me to keep working kind of 30 years later is the relationship I build with the client. Um, that that feels incredibly rewarding and rich. And I get a lot more from it than they probably get from me, in fact. Well, I'm sure, I'm sure they get a lot from it. I mean, I guess grief and, and bereavement are probably one of the greatest adversities we can, we can face. What are the particular challenges of, of people that, with that type of uh, adversity? When a baby or child dies? Yeah. I think, I think it's, I think particularly in the 21st century, we never expect to bury our children. Um, it tears up the rule book of life that um, our child would die before us. And fundamentally, it in some ways uh, sometimes breaks and other, other times kind of fragments your trust in yourself and trust in life and everything you believed in. Because when a child is born, you... Uh, picture them as a toddler, as a 10-year-old, as a teenager, seeing them kind of lead into adulthood and bury you. So you have to completely reconfigure everything you trust and everything you believe in when um, your child dies. And, I mean, what is your uh, approach to helping people with, with that kind of challenge? I mean, I think the first thing is to kind of acknowledge the level of the pain. I don't go into it to try and fix it. I build a relationship with, which supports them where they are. And pain is the agent of change. Pain is the thing that forces you to face this new reality that you don't want to be true and um, adjust internally to this new you. I mean, if it's your only child, are you still a parent when your child has died? And in fact, of course you are, because you you still love the child as much, maybe even more than when they were alive. So what we talk about now is continuing bonds where the child has died and they're no longer physically present in your life, but the relationship and the love continues. And so the work I do is both facing the pain of them not physically being present and how they find ways of bearing that, which is how they heal but also ways that they continue the relationship. Is it through going for walks and thinking of their child? Is it wearing something that connects them to the child? Is it writing letters to the child? Is it sometimes people do um, charitable things in memory of their child? And, th and maybe they do all of them. Um, and so it's how, what we talk about now. See, my parents' generation talked about moving on and getting over and forgetting and what we talk about now is accommodating that you have to change your internal landscape to adapt to this loss, which is the sort of shape of the person that's died. And the shape never changes, but you build your life around it. So that's in when you're talking about adversity, it isn't that the pain shrinks because you can go back and touch it 20 years later and it can feel as intense, but you build lots of beliefs and experiences and love and ways of living again around the whole. So it isn't everything, which when it first happens, it feels like it's everything. Yes. I mean, the point you're making about 
you know, society, certainly historically, and probably our parents' generation were very much of the sweep it under the, the carpet outlook. And they had to do that. You know, they they fought in the Second World War. Yes. They were children of parents who fought in the First World War. They, there was no therapy virtually. There was no understanding of the grief process. And the only option they had was to survive. They had to survive and get on and give birth to the baby boomers, us, and rebuild the economy, which they did. So they they did an enormous amount, but they didn't have a language or, or any kind of understanding of psychological um, processes. Yeah, and clearly the context has, has changed significantly Enormously. for everybody we have now. The, we have a luxury to grieve they never had. Yes. Although that's the case, uh, I, I still wonder whether that historical outlook still prevails quite significantly in people's mindset. I mean, I still think that death is very much a taboo and it scares people. People have a kind of magical thinking that if I think about or talk about death, somehow it might hasten my death, death whereas if I kind of imagine it's everybody else, then I, I don't, it's not going to hurt me. But we do have much greater psychological awareness and acceptance of feelings. And actually, even in the work that I do in the last 30 years, um, and particularly around child death, which is unbearable to even think about, so people don't want to kind of go there in their minds, I think there is much more awareness and and um, recognition. Soothe you. Don't do things that wind you up. You know, if you think you're a a system that everything you watch, eat, see, move, don't move, affects your mood. So do things that are positive and not negative. Yeah. Don't, don't listen don't to the news. Don't watch the news. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting to pick up that point you made about allowing grief. Um, uh, that's an, a, a whole interesting area, isn't it, about people accepting what's going on that they can't control rather than feeling they need to perhaps try and sort of control it to some extent. Yes, I mean, I, I think how you heal in grief is is by allowing yourself to feel the pain and that's how you heal. And the things that you do to block the pain, which are often busyness as an anaesthetic or alcohol and drugs, mm. um, are the things in the long term that do you harm. Because in both my books, the sort of connector is that we have to adapt and change according to the circumstances we're in, rather than limit ourselves by believing falsely that we have control. You know, you have to accept the things that you have no control over and change the things that you can. And these very big things to do with life, do with birth and death, and how people perceive you, we can influence, but we fundamentally have no control. And the more you kind of recognize that, in some ways it's liberating. Because if you're looping in your head, grinding yourself down, trying to have control over something that fundamentally isn't in your gift, then you just drive yourself crazy. I'm curious as to whether, um, obviously, your knowledge and expertise in this area, does it has it affected the way you live your life? I think in, in lots of ways. I mean, I have a very warped view of life so i <laughs> while i was at well i see much more death so I, you know i see yes i see in that context yes i get that so yes. I, and i see much more um 
traumatic death and I see much more child death than is normal. So, I mean, there are 6,000 child deaths a year and, you know, I probably work six or seven hours a week with families who've had a child that dies. So that's yeah, that yeah. that affects, and while I was at Mary's, it was much more, obviously, than yes. I was in the hospital. Um, and I saw children die. And so I, both, I, ha- I um, I'm very grateful for small things and it's kind of facing death, I think, has given me a richness and a gratitude for what we do have and the preciousness of life and sort of really appreciate that. But also I'm much more nervous. So if my children who are fully adult and all married with their own children, if they have a headache, I always think they've got a brain tumour. <laughs> yes. You know, yes. all my grandchildren, when they're on bicycles, I kind of hold in my breath or, yes. you know, when my children are pregnant, I'm always worried. So, yes. yeah, I mean, I have thousands of bad stories that, yes. you know, I keep mainly at bay, but, of course, it's changed my view of safety, yeah. It's actually a very powerful point about context, isn't it? That, that you know the context of our circumstances and environment, how how much they influence our, our outlook and perceptions. Definitely, you say, your, your, your belief system. Yeah, your belief system is informed by your experience, mm. and my experience is is I mean, in some ways, incredible is is a wonderful experience I've had. You know, I feel I've travelled about a million miles sitting in one chair in West London through all the different families and stories and um, experiences I've had with people. But um, I I see a slightly more risky world than most people. Yes. I mean, having had this experience, obviously working very closely, intimately with people with a, a, a very significant life event, what have you sort of learned about people as a result of that? I've learned that people have much more capacity to survive adversity and grow from it um, and have more courage than you would ever imagine, that people who themselves would have thought, I'll never survive something like this happening to me, find not only do they survive and feel the pain and go through the process, because this never denies the, the level of the loss or the trauma, but they also find that they can even thrive and grow from it, that their perception about themselves of how robust they are, how resilient they are grows. Their perception of what matters in life changes and what gives their life meaning changes. And all of that, they would say, feels like growth, but it would never diminish the the meaning or the terribleness of the loss. The two kind of sit side by side. Yes. So uh, in that work, have you been able to observe what the kind of mindsets and behaviours are of people that do ultimately deal with it and are able to, to use your words, grow, grow from it? Yeah, I think some of it is um, your attitude that you kind of have to keep it in the day and keep going, keep your habits going so that you don't project too far into the future. Because if you kind of see yourself in 10 years' time with the, with the, your child that's died, you could drive yourself mad. Mm. You know, they're going to feel like this in 10 years' time so that people mm. keep their skylines short. Structure really helps. I think work really helps, actually, because it kind of gives them their sense of agency of what they can do when they're so powerless over the death of someone they love. 
But hope is the alchemy that turns a life around. Fundamentally, mm -hmm. it's finding ways to support yourself to feel the pain and also trust that you will get to the other side, even if that flame is very tiny at the beginning, that you have hope that you can rebuild your life and you don't box yourself in as a victim. Like this is never, I'm never going to get over this. This is who I am now. But they allow themselves to be changed and find their new version of themselves, given what's happened to them. Yes. So, uh, I mean, it's it, it's a combination of, of of sort of practical things and and emotional outlook, if I'm understanding yes. you correctly. Yeah, and basics like exercise and breathing and what you eat helps balance you. That physiolo physiognomy does build resilience. So re resilience isn't set through your genetics and your upbringing. Resilience can be grown and built from your attitude and your behaviors so you we although you don't have choices over what's happened you do have choices over your response to what's happened but the biggest kind of um outcome influencer when bad things happen is your love and connection to others it's you know when something terrible happens the thing that matters to us most is it, and when love dies like if a person you love dies it is love in other places that enables you to survive. It's the single biggest influencer of your outcomes, the support you get at the time and afterwards. I think you're saying that resilience is actually a muscle you can build in a way. Definitely. Mm. I think it helps, of course, your upbringing, what you've seen modelled with your parents, your attachment. So if you have secure attachment, and you have a basic level of trust in yourself and life that supports you more to go to resilience. But even if you have insecure attachment, you've had very difficult things happen to you, you can still build your resilience. I think it takes longer and it's tougher and you can be more fragile and more vulnerable. But all of us, how, whatever we start with and whatever our circumstances, we have the capacity to to grow and change. And that's why, you know, survival of the fittest, the Darwinian evolutionary model, is that we're born to change and that's how we survive. Oh, it's easy to lose sight of that. Um... Well, I think the 21st century has given us a completely full sense of our own potency and power. Yeah. On the one hand, that you think technology or a leader or money is going to fix it, when fundamentally it's within yourself over the, these impossible things. So, I mean, if you were writing the sort of, I guess, manual for, for people facing adversity to come through it, what, what would be the headlines in your mind? To be self-compassionate and support yourself and your life to have hope. Mm -hmm. That's it. People tend, when things go wrong, like in my second book, This Too Shall Pass, you know, the, the 30 years of clients who've come through my door, whatever their presenting issue, all of them have had a pro problematic relationship with change and then felt that they are doing it wrong, that it's their fault. And people often turn on themselves, particularly in grief, where they kind of think, if only, what if? if mm. I should have, and they kind of revolve and go over and over. And what helps you most to be to be able to be resilient is, is to be self-compassionate. 
is to start with yourself and be kind to yourself and support yourself. And then that will build that muscle to to be able to adapt and change to the new circumstances you find yourself in, yes. however much you never wanted them to be what they are. Let's talk about about the book now. I mean, its title is "This Too Shall Pass: Stories of Change, Crisis, and Hopeful Beginnings." Good title for now, right? Perfect. (laughs) (laughs) You couldn't have timed it better. (laughs) No, no. it was it was titled last year. Actually, my editor, my ed, I called it "Life Is Change," and my editor luckily didn't like it. And said, this too shall pass. And I said, oh, that's a bit cliche. We all know it too much. But I couldn't think of anything better. So I let her (laughs) choose the title. (laughs) She was damn right. Well, there's a good example of of sort of letting go, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Serendipity. She knows better than me. Well, I don't know about serendipity, perhaps. Um, what, What is the central premise of what you're trying to convey in that book? Is that life is change. It's the only Mm. certainty in life. And we need to kind of learn how to support ourselves through it. Um, And that we have, like I've said, that we have to have self-compassion and support ourselves, that the pain we feel from the change doesn't kill us. We need to know ourselves rather than distract ourselves because then we'll thrive. Because if we ignore our difficulties in the hope that if you close your eyes and resist them, they just come back harder and faster Mm. and knock you out more. But also what you do to shut out the pain blocks your capacity to feel. So if you have pain one end of your emotional bandwidth and joy the other, when you block the pain of the change, you incrementally also block your capacity to feel joy. So you function fine and you breathe in and out but your emotional availability and capacity to engage fully in the day and take pleasure in it is foreshortened. So we all know those people that seem kind of tinny and grumpy and and that's because they've shut down basically because they didn't mm. want to deal with whatever it was that they had to face. And so they have less and less pleasure and joy in life, which is a real shame. Was there a particular set of events or experiences or, or, or moment that prompted you to write this particular book? I mean, really, it, it's because I think telling... So these are there's 18 case studies through the kind of five, I think, main aspects of one's life, which is family, love, work, health and identity. Mm-hmm. And I find from grief works the thing that people find most helpful was the real stories that they could relate to even if they were from a completely different background and it was a different experience they often the most personal is the most universal so I felt by telling these stories people would understand themselves better and support themselves better Um, and I think we're you know there's been more change in the last 50 years societally than ever before you know the institutions like i talked before of marriage and religion within there's more fluidity of boundaries in gender sexuality and relationships and people like the choices but they feel very overwhelmed so i hope this book would kind of give them through the stories and through the research and my eight pillars of strength at the end that it would give them a guide for their lives that could support them to manage change through the different phases of their life. 
Is there a particular story that might illustrate the, you know, the content of the book? So, I mean, the the first one is uh, to do with family, and she's called Lena, and she is Indian-born but living here, and her daughter was getting married, and she liked the fact that her daughter was marrying, and she liked the future husband, but she became obsessed and wanted control over the wedding, and, the, and her daughter being Western-born, she didn't have this kind of Indian collective attitude to life that her mom could control everything and choose yes. everything. And so she had to go through a lot of kind of distress in a way, but recognise the differences between them, except that, that her daughter needed to be British. Um, and look at herself, you know, that when your daughter is marrying, you lose the young version of yourself because it kind of resides then in your daughter and they're having a future that you no longer have. So there are a lot of losses when your children go up and leave you. And so it was allowing herself to feel the losses and also to build a new version of herself that wasn't 24-7 a mother, but a a woman who had other interests and things that would support her through this next phase of her life. Yes. So it's about recognising what your phases of your life that you... You have to accept, basically. Yeah, and I'm sure many people can relate to that because obviously, at some point, if they have children, they they leave the home. So, um, I, I, with any luck, <laughs> well, yes, increasingly takes longer than it used to. But um, boomerang kids, yeah. yeah. Many more coming back yes. home. I mean, a lot will be home now well, that will be causing a lot well, of problems. I was going to say, I mean, in, in many ways, the coming back uh, is, is as difficult as the going away, isn't it? There's lots of research in my book about what you do when they come oh, back there? and how you set ground rules. That's interesting. Yeah. Under family. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's particularly in- interesting because, I mean, I guess when they come back, they're in the you know, whatever they are, late 20s, 30s, whatever. The, the, so the, 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 the idea of... of of giving them boundaries is an interesting concept, isn't it? Because when they come back, people, you may have felt it with your own parents, they often revert to that kind of 10-year-old yes. self and you become the parent to this 10-year-old in the body of a 30-year-old. Yes. And so you have to kind of reconfigure how you operate as a family and as a family system, given that it's really changed. Yes. So you have to talk about the things that often are assumed because the rules are different, completely different. Yes, it's. I guess it's a bit like transactional analysis. You sort of revert to your historical roles, parent and child, and, and I suppose exactly. the parent does the same thing. I mean, they become back to being the parent rather rather than the you know an adult to adult conversation about. And so, in families that work, you know, you there there are so many influences. There's the transgenerational influence that you know what people talk about, and again, this is in the book that. The experiences that haven't been voiced and haven't been expressed stay in the family system, influencing and shaping it. And that it isn't until someone's prepared to feel the pain that they fully adapt and change. But also functional families aren't families that fight. They're families that fight and repair and have good ways of communicating. So it's how you fight and how you communicate after difficulty, because we're all going to have difficulty that makes the difference between a functional and a dysfunctional family. We moved on to talk about Julia's latest book, This Too Shall Pass. Stories of change, crisis and hopeful beginnings. A book that Esther Perel 
described as a remarkable portrayal of how we need to understand ourselves to truly heal. The book draws on real-life stories and therapy practice from family relationships to love and work. From these stories, Julia has identified the pillars of strength that help people to move through change successfully. Our conversation moved on to talk about these pillars. So the pillars are that when you change, you feel out of control and you feel chaotic. So the idea of the pillars is that you need for your resilience, like we've talked all the way through, you need to develop attitudes and structures and ways of being that hold you steady when you get hit by the waves of change and loss that comes through your system. Um, and so some of it is your your relationship with yourself. Some of it is your relationship with others. Some of it is your relationship with your mind and body. So your mind, the, what people talk about now is the body remembers, the body holds the score so that you get re-triggered in the environments you've been in that kind of send that tiger in front of you on alert. And so you have to find ways of stabilising your body, that you need to set limits, you need to have structure. So all the things I've talked yes. about, but they're set out in, in pillars and examples of what to do and how to do them. And that you, what I'd hope is that people would create their own pillars that work for themselves as a toolbox that they can kind of, use permanently to support themselves when they're going through adversity, when they're going through huge change, or even just regular kind of life, which is still quite um, rollercoastery, isn't it? Yes. What's the difference between a good, good argument and a bad one? So a good argument is where you take responsibility and you own what you feel. So I am feeling angry that you didn't put the bins out last night rather than, you fucking bastard, as always, you never fucking put, put the bins out. And I'm sick to death of you fucking bastard not putting the bins out. <laughs> oh, yes. So one, Apart from the language differences, so, <laughs> there's intent. Well, I can even be, I can, but I can own it, though. I, I'm fucking angry you didn't put the bins yeah. out is different. I feel angry. I own my yes. feeling. And I say what it is about your behaviour that I find yes. difficult, that you didn't put the bins out, yes. rather than I hate you, you always. Yes. Um, so sort which of slightly you, you, you have to. It's depersonalising and you have no choice but to fight back or retreat. Yes. So you, you either say, well, you didn't do the washing up, you know, you, and then it escalates yes. rather than... Gosh, I can see that you're really upset. I didn't put the bins out. I don't blame you for being upset, but the reason I didn't was because. So you yes. have, a, you can be annoyed with each other, and you can be assertive. You can name what's yes. going on, but you don't tear holes in the person and in the fabric of the relationship. Yes. So you you are both intact, and actually, often after you've been angry and you've kind of weathered it, you often feel closer and you often laugh. Yes, but when you make it objective. So there's a whole section in the book too under love about how to argue what causes fractures in relationships, how to choose a partner, the 10 questions to yes. see whether you have a lifetime yes, partner. Yes, crikey. Yeah, that's useful <laughs> for many yeah. people. Are we a good fit yes. is the overarching. Because relationships are made, they're not. So this idea that um, I find my kind of love partner that will make me whole and he's the one you know, is is a mythical one. That's interesting. And what the research 
research shows is that good relationships are made and built. You have to, the more you kind of, in are we a good fit, the more boxes that you tick, like do we have the same values, do we have the same hopes and dreams, do we kind of support each other in difficulty, do we get on, you'd want to tick those yes. and find ways of fighting and, you know, all of that. I like that idea of constructive fighting. I think that's so interesting. I'm I'm reminded of a I think uh, I I I read something from Alan de Botham who said you, you you know why you will never find the perfect partner. You never find the right person. Why the person you marry you know is not the right person. And I mean it's a slightly provocative way of saying and he's very skeptical. I mean I know Alan and he, he is super skeptical. Uh, uh, he is but he and i think he has a point but the research all the research shows that those that build good reliable strong relationships which include how to fight they um, are healthier wealthier happier they live longer and their memory is better in old age and they feel less pain in old age so love and connection in relationship is the elixir to life and we have to kind of prioritize, if that's what we want, we have to prioritize it and invest in it. It doesn't just happen. You have to make it work. And of course, there'll be your upbringing and your genetics and your first relationships and luck that will influence it. But basically, you shape it yourselves. Yes. It's a decision, isn't it? Yes. And that's very powerful because that says that, you know, you, you have got some degree of of control of your destiny but not necessarily to do with the circumstances but more to do with the way you interact with your life i guess you have a huge influence on your destiny in those in that respect you don't that you can be hit by a car or all, all the terrible things that we've talked about but mm. in relationship you absolutely have an enormous agency and influence and not control but you you can create and make strong, vibrant, alive relationships if you commit to and decide to. And that is a choice. Yes. Well, you've, you've certainly done an excellent job of, um, of selling your book, I think. It's uh, great. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly make, making people think it's certainly worth something to go out and, and get. One of, one of the things in my... Um, eight pillars of strength, particularly around exercise and all of those aspects, yeah. it's JFDI, just fucking do it. <laughs> you like that word. <laughs> well, it's just that you, you kind of want to wake up in the mood to go for a run or you want to wake yes. up and think, oh, shan I, shan't I go for a cycle? Yeah. I mean, there's no point asking yourself because you yeah. would always prefer to stay in bed. But just yeah. have it in and do it. Don't ask yourself the question and then give yourself a treat afterwards yes. so that you feel, yay, I've done it. And now yes. I can have a delicious breakfast or a lovely cup of coffee or a shower yes. or whatever it feels like. Yes, yes. It, it, I guess that's why something as, you know, what seems trivial is actually writing down, you know, journaling what you're going to do during a day and things like that it actually is part of the equation of convincing your mind you actually to do it rather than procrastinate about it. Exactly. Was writing those books the most important things for you in terms of, of your achievements? I mean, I think they equal being found a patron 
of Charbereement UK and est- helping establish and launch it and doing all the work with the charity. But it's the most, I mean, I love my job, so I love seeing clients, but I loved writing the books and I love that they're out there and I love that I get emails from people saying that it's the first time they felt understood when they're grieving or that it's really helped them or they keep it in their bag because it feels like they say it saves their life. So yes. the rewards, I mean, I did actually love the writing, but which is surprising. I mean, some days, obviously, I loathed it and wanted to throw my computer out the window <laughs> yeah. but, <laughs> and give it up and think, why on earth did I put myself through yeah. this? It's like homework forever. I'm never going to finish. Yeah. But, you know, when when I meet people or hear from people that, that it's really helped them, that is incredibly enriching and rewarding. And that feels wonderful that it's now out there and people can get it and and they can use my knowledge and experience and people's stories to support themselves that feels like a wonderful thing yeah an obvious point i guess is that it enables you to spread your wisdom to a a broader church of people which obviously you couldn't do on a one-to-one basis i mean that's when i did the first book the reason i did it was that i I wasn't sure I had knowledge that was useful for people, but once I started writing, it felt like I did. And then Mm. it kind of, yes, it spread it from just the four walls of my room out into, I mean, it's in 17 countries now, so it spread it out into the world in a way that it it can go where they can't get therapy. So it's in China, for instance, and doing very well in China. And it's quite difficult to access therapy in China. It, it can fill the gap where there isn't therapists. So that's a, that feels very meaningful. Mm. What's next for, for you? I'm doing another book. You're doing another book? Yeah. So you've definitely got the bug. I've definitely got the bug. <laughs> and I haven't started it yet, but I've got a, a deal, as it were. Oh, fantastic. And I've got the idea. Um, and what will this third book focus on? It's a secret now. <laughs> of course, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but it'll be good. It'll be it'll cracking be good. good. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes, watch this space. <laughs> watch this space. A yes. hundred years' time. <laughs> very good, very good. Is there any question that you would have liked me to have asked that I didn't? I mean, I think the thing in the end, that it's love that matters most and that we find ways of loving ourselves and supporting ourselves and connecting is the thing that matters and it's a complex thing it's not it's 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 easy to say and difficult to do i was going to say get getting getting and receiving of it is is not always straightforward is it by no means and we can get stuck only giving and finding it hard to receive or demanding and finding it difficult to give and yeah so understanding how we operate and what how we adapt and change in order to be able to give and receive and build sound relationships, I think really, really matters. And I I think like, uh, you know, after 9-11 and 2008, people wanted a kinder, gentler world. They wanted Mm -hmm. to learn from it. And in reality, that didn't materialize. I think now people want community to matter. They want to their values to change, they want the environment to matter. But there's a pull between the survival of the fittest and our need to be part of a tribe and altruism, which is, you know, supporting each other. And again, it's a matter of choice. I think when people 
kind of look back at their lives. They will look at the love and connection, but they will also look through the lens of before and after Corona. And they will value themselves like, did I, was I my best self post Corona? Did I learn from it? Did I, yes. did I make, do I, did I do my bit to change the world to make it a better place? Did yes. I learn my lessons? Yes. And um, I think people want to, and whether they actually decide to is up to them. That's really been a, a fascinating uh, discussion, Julia. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk about your work. There is so much to reflect on in what Julia had to say. Julia shows a real humble and honest appraisal of the struggles that people have in their life. And she shows a real understanding of what it's like for people to deal with these issues. What struck me was recognising the sheer complexity of our emotions. Paradoxically, it is accepting this and being prepared to work with this as one of the ways to help us move through life's adversities. Denial and suppression are perhaps the greatest enemies we have when dealing with these emotions. As Julia says in her book, if we have the courage to face difficulties with self-compassion, learn to know ourselves rather than distract ourselves, then change will bring growth. I found Julia's writing compassionate and insightful, and I really would recommend it to anybody, regardless of whether you're dealing with difficulties in your life. See you next time. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe and be sure to listen out for the next episode, where I again will be exploring with my guests how they turned adversity into advantage. See you next time. Go safely.